Luke chapter 23. And we're going to read together from verse 44 through to the end of verse 46. I always read from the ESV. It's the best translation that I'm aware of. Not that the other ones aren't very good, but this one is the best one that I'm aware of. Um, Worth getting hold of. I always read from the ESV. And so here we go. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word again today, it is both compelling and mesmerizing to stand around Calvary again. Lord, would you open our eyes? Would you do things that no preacher can ever do? Would you open our eyes to behold the glories of Calvary? Would our lives be affected? Would we be amazed? Would we be compelled? Lord, with these words that you have ordained and written, not just speak to our minds, but would they speak to our hearts? Would they speak to our emotions? Would they speak to the whole of our lives as you've designed us and created us to be affected? So Lord, have your way amongst us by your grace. And Lord, would all these people in this room hear your voice rather than mine. For your glory, Lord. Amen. You know, just last Monday, we uh, observed Anzac Day for the first time in our lives, particularly being British, um, but we joined with you in remembering all of the Australian and New Zealand soldiers that had died, obviously, in the First World War, but obviously many wars after that and many different battles. And throughout the day, I, I couldn't help but be reminded of my own grandfather, my granddad Taylor, because growing up, he used to tell me all his World War II stories. Both of my grandfathers served in the war which is the case of most people my age, grandfathers in the UK. And, and one of them in particular, because he lived so close to me, I was able to draw him out about what actually happened and what took place in all the different things that he did. He served in Africa and Italy and various other places. And so I, I used to sit with him at length and listen to his stories, the stories of the sea crossings from England to Africa and how it would take several months and how you would argue and, and wrestle people for the best for the best seats in the boat, because if you got into the middle, you'd be less seasick, but if you got either end, it was a pretty rocky journey, and so I used to talk about how they would all argue and fight for the best seats and the best beds actually on the boat. He reminded me of a time when he actually burnt his own tent down, which is awkward. You see, my granddad was a little bit of a naughty boy, nothing like myself, and he spent his life just kind of messing about, so he actually went to, went to war, and in Africa, they all set their tents up, And they were instructed to ensure that they not leave any binoculars anywhere near the tent. When he thought his would probably be all right. So he went out for a day in his underpants and his trainers, because they had a day off. And he goes running off and he comes back and his whole tent is gone. Particularly awkward as he only had trainers and underpants on. So he had to argue with all his mates and try and beg off all his mates to try and get some kit back. And I used to love that story. It used to just endear me to my granddad. He also used to talk to me about his long shifts. 
how they would spend literally through the night running from the front line to, to where his post was, just sending messages and so on and so forth. But the highlight for me of all my granddad's stories was the moment when he started talking about the feeling of knowing he was coming home. The moment when they would all gather around the radio and heard Winston Churchill say that the World War II in, in Europe had come to an end. And just that ecstatic feeling of assurance and rest that the mission's done. The battle comes to an end and, and we're going home. And the reason why I bring that up is because I really think that description is a shadow of what Jesus is doing here and what Jesus is saying here in his final cry. You see, this isn't a cry of victory. The victory's already come. He's already declared, it is finished. And as we saw last week, it is finished. His battle with Satan was finished. He had dealt with Satan once and for all. The lightning of the battle with Satan was done, and so now we just await the thunderous roar of victory. But it's already done. It's already assured, and Satan has been paraded around the cross in a scornful and mocking way. His fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy was finished. Over 300 prophecies over 500 years had been completed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His suffering was finished. All that he had been through in his life and now in his death had come to a close. And his glorious work of salvation, his atoning sacrifice was indeed finished. There was now access to God the Father through Jesus Christ once and for all. And so he declares in a loud voice, it is finished. Victory has been made sure. But now we see the cry of assurance. He's basically saying, Dad, Father, I'm coming home. Father, the, the battle's been done. It's finished. I've done all that you assigned me to do. So, Dad, I'm, I'm coming home. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. You see, this cry of assurance is in and of itself incredibly compelling. And as we go through it this morning, I want you to be compelled. I want you to be amazed as we see the cry that Jesus understood of assurance in his own life. And yet, the cry of assurance, although compelling in and of itself in terms of the way Jesus viewed it, is also captivating when you realize that this cry still echoes on today in the lives of all those that know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You see, this wasn't just a cry 2,000 years ago that we read in narrative and go, oh, that's very interesting. This is a cry that was cried 2,000 years ago that still echoes on today and influences and has function in the life of every individual in this room. And so I want us to examine it and pull it apart and look at it really by doing two things. I want to look at his assurance in his cry. And then secondly, I want to look at our assurance in his cry. So let's start with his assurance in his cry. You see, these are the last words recorded to us before Jesus dies. Now, in God's grace, they're not the last words of Jesus, okay? Because three days later, he rose again. So the, Jesus still speaks today. You know, he's pretty good like that since he's been alive. And he still complete, completely talks to this day. And he did much more, obviously, as we see at the end of the different Gospels, as he ascended and rose again and said more things then. And yet, nonetheless, these are the last words before he actually died in his body. And as such, they really are quite compelling and really are glorious. Father, into your hands I commit 
my spirit. You see, the Savior right now is living and responding in the shadow of the victory. So it is finished, good. Now he's responding in rest to that, an assurance and confidence because of that. You see, this moment for Jesus, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. This moment for Jesus in his heart is filled with assurance and confidence and rest. That is what is being fueled here in this cry, Father, I'm coming home. And there's two things that I want to point out just as subheadings that really help us to see where that assurance and confidence and rest came from. You see, there was two things that Jesus has without doubt confident assurance in as he cries out this, these words. The first is this. He has confident assurance that his work is now finished. He has confident assurance that his work, all that he had come to do, is now gloriously and appropriately finished. You see, there are seven cries of Calvary. And if you ever want to study them, I'd encourage you to do so because they are amazing. And there's a book coming this week um, that should help you with that, that I'll be able to advertise next week. But the cries of Calvary are, are compelling and amazing, all seven of them. Jesus starts, the very first one, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's gazing at the centurion and the soldiers and the crowd that are mocking him and spitting on him and shouting at him. And he's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right at the end then, he addresses Father again. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But there's five others in between that are very important. There's the cry of acceptance, where Jesus Christ turns to the thief, who is clearly putting his faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and says, today you will be with me in paradise. There's the cry of compassion. Mother, behold your son. And John? Behold your mother, as Jesus cares for them, as he cares for his beloved disciple and his own mother. There's the cry of suffering. I am thirsty. You want to know if Jesus Christ is really fully human or not? I am thirsty. It was a cry of humanity. It was a cry of suffering, as in his body he realized, I'm, I'm breaking apart. I'm thirsty. There's the cry of victory. It is finished. But the most compelling one, and I think the most, the most grieving one and troubling one, is the cry of anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, that is the most troubling and grieving cry, I think, that has ever been recorded anywhere in any literature, ever. Because Jesus has had perfect unity Perfect, joyful unity from ages past. He's the Alpha and Omega. There's never been a time in history past when Jesus hasn't had perfect unity in joy with the Father. But now as he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's recognizing that God the Father has turned his face away from him. He's cut himself off from him. And so now Jesus is not receiving unity and joy He's receiving wrath. And as you examine that, you think, why? Why is that the case? Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He doesn't deserve to be cut off from the Father. Wrath is without question a, a compelling and a result of sin, but Jesus didn't deserve it. But of course, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he became our sin bearer. 
And he began to take on the wrath of God which we deserved and which we had earned. So he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows the answer. But in pain and in anguish, he cannot but cry it. D.A. Carson, writing about wrath, says, In the Bible, God's wrath is a function of his holiness. His wrath or anger is not the explosion of a bad temper or a chronic inability to restrain his irritability, but rather a just and principled opposition to sin. God's holiness is so amazingly glorious that it demands that he be wrathful with those of his creatures who defy him, sly his majesty, turn their noses at his words and works, and insist on their own independence, even though every breath they breathe, not to mention their very existence, depends on his providential care. If God were to gaze at sin and rebellion, shrug his shoulders and mutter, well, I'm not too bothered. I can forgive these people. I don't really care what they do. Surely there would be something morally deficient about him. Should God care nothing of Hitler's outrages? Should God care nothing of my rebellion or your rebellion? If he acted this way, he would ultimately discount his own significance, sully his own glory, besmirch his own honor, and soil his own integrity. You know, when the holiness of God and our sin collide, the inevitable outcome is God's wrath. He is holy. He is above and beyond us in every way, not only in his life and in his greatness, but in his moral purity. And yet, we've rejected him. We've become his enemies. And so because of his justice and his holiness, when his holiness and our sin collides, wrath is an inevitable outcome. Because somebody has to pay for our rebellion. Somebody has to pay for our rejection of him. And on the cross, Jesus Christ, as he declared, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was taking that wrath. He was taking that wrath for all those who would put their faith in him as Lord and Savior. And as he did, he cries out with great anguish the troubling and grieving cry of, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's barely imaginable, is it? But the Savior of the world, God's Son, as he gazes at his Father who has always been there through him throughout history past, always there through him right to this point as he addresses him, Father, forgive them. But now he's not. Now he's cut off. Now he has rejected his own son. You know, the thing that I want you to identify there, and the thing that I want you to specifically notice is the timeline of the cries. Because this is compelling. I mean, look again. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the first cry. He's addressing God as Father. He then says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He understands that he is cut off from God. That God in his sovereignty and in his wrath is indeed pouring his wrath out on Jesus. But having declared it is finished, what does he say? Father, into your hands I commit thy spirit. He is fully aware that that I have paid it all. I have drank the cup of wrath in its completeness. All of the consequence for sin, I have drank to the full. It is gone, and so my relationship with my Father is now restored. I've done it. I've completed the task. And so, Father, I return to you now, knowing that I'm no longer cut off from you. I've drank the cup of wrath to the full, Father. So, Father, I'm coming home. 
Isn't it wonderful? Jesus Christ knew it was done. And he knew it was done not only because the curtain temple ripping in, in two. He knew it was done because now he addresses the Father as Father again. Not as one who he's cut off from, but as his dad, who he's close to once again on our behalf. So he has confident assurance that his work is done. But he also has confident assurance, number two, that his time to die has now come. That his time to actually breathe his last has indeed arrived. You see, in John 10, verse 18, we read something pretty cool. Jesus tells us that, in fact, no man can actually take his life from him. And then, indeed, if he was going to die, he would need to lay his life down. Well, that makes him pretty darn different from us. I mean, goodness me, I can't lay my life down, right? We have a passive death. All of us have a passive death. It will arrive in God's timing, and there won't be anything we can do about it. We are completely passive in our death, but not so with Jesus. In the Greek, you realize that this committing of the Spirit is almost dismissing the Spirit. It is something that Jesus, as the sovereign one of all, actually has to do. He has to be active in his death. No man can take the life of Christ. No man can take in and of himself the life of Jesus Christ. He has to dismiss his Spirit. No one can kill God. God has to dismiss himself. He has to dismiss his spirit to the Father. That's a very different death to the one we will face. And yet as he hangs there on the cross and as he hangs there at Calvary, he knows my time has come. It's done. You see, the final consequence of sin is death. Make no doubt, he has drank the cup of wrath to the full. But the final consequence, the final thing necessary in an atoning sacrifice is death. And Jesus Christ, realizing, I've dealt with the wrath of the Father, now says, okay, Dad, I'm ready. You know what he's effectively saying? He's saying, Dad, I'm ready, so kill me. You see, Jesus Christ at Calvary was completing so much of Scripture All of the Old Testament was coming together in a great crescendo, and it was coming to a great crescendo even through this cry. You see, Jesus Christ, as he says, Father, I commit my spirit to you, as he says, okay, Father, I'm ready, is completing two grand storylines of Scripture. As Jesus hangs on the cross, and as the Father stands above him with a dagger in hand, Jesus Christ is about to complete two incredible lines. The first line is is the line of Abraham and Isaac. Remember the story? We all learn it in Sunday school or at school, and we all think that's jolly nice. It must be a kid's story. But it's actually a true story. And it's actually an incredible story, not only of history, but of pointing us to Jesus Christ. You see, God, having given Abraham the son in his old age, Abraham is 100 years old, and you just think, that is insane. I remember talking to our kids just recently about this, and we were saying, well, how old is the oldest person you know? They said, well, granddad is 90. I said, that is very old. Could you imagine in 10 years' time him having a baby? And that was hilarious. And we're like, well, that's what they found then as well, man. It was hilarious. This is just unique. This is individual, and it defies belief, but it is true. And yet what's staggering is in Genesis 22, God, having all the time promised to Abraham a son, now says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, to the top of the mountain that I will assign, and there sacrifice him. That's incredible. But God, this is the one you'd promised for me. This is the boy. This is the one that will bless the nations through this line. God, I can't just kill him. 
But Abraham, being obedient and humble and full of faith, did as God had instructed him. So he put sacrificial wood on the back of his son, as you read it. He then spends three days walking out to Mount Moriah. And there at the top of Mount Moriah, he gets the wood and spreads it along the floor. He binds his son, and he stands above his son with a dagger. And just as he is about to thrust that dagger into the, into the belly of his son, an angel cries out with a loud voice, Stop! God has provided for you. A ram was caught in the thicket. And Abraham rejoiced because he knew that God had provided that God had made a way of an escape for his son Isaac, and he sacrificed the ram instead of his son. He was thrilled. Abraham would have no doubt rejoiced, knowing that, my, God has provided a ram for my son. But listen, that's not all he saw. You see, Jesus himself, in John 8 verse 56, Jesus himself, talking to his disciples, says, Abraham saw the day of Christ and rejoiced. What is that all about? It's about very cool. That's what that's about. Jesus knew full well that Abraham, in some way, saw my day. Jesus Christ was seen by Abraham. You see, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham himself says, On this mount, the Lord will provide. And then we have Jesus saying, He saw my day and rejoiced. Oh, this is fascinating. You see, Mount Moriah, the place that, have you ever wondered? Why Abraham took Isaac three days to walk out? Why didn't they find a local hill? I mean, what's up with that? Why do we have to go on this huge long walk? Why not just do somewhere local? Well, they had to walk to Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah became the place for King Solomon's temple. King Solomon's temple became the place for Jerusalem. The hill in Jerusalem was called Calvary. On this mount, the Lord will provide. And so as God the Father stands above his son now at Calvary, he stands there with the dagger of Abraham. For God will indeed provide on this hill. The sacrificial ram that was replacing Isaac was only to point us to Jesus Christ. And so now the world awaits, history awaits, and as God the Father stands there with the dagger above his son, Jesus Christ is saying, I am he. I am the ram. I am the true substitution for Isaac. So, Father, kill me. Take me home. Finish the job. Because I've done my part. Father, I now need you to kill me. One of the greatest storylines of Scripture, Abraham and Isaac, is closed out with Jesus Christ uttering these words. But also the Passover lamb storyline is completely and utterly completed and finalized. See, every day, every year on the Day of Atonement, a Passover lamb would be slain. And it would be slain every year on this day as a reminder to Exodus chapter 12, the point where the Passover took place. And if you remember that story, it's quite interesting. See, the Israelites are indeed as a nation in Egypt, and they've multiplied, and so the Egyptians have basically turned them into slavery. But they're crying out to God for help. So God rocks up and he helps them. But the the last of the different plagues, the last plague, he says, listen, I'm going to send the angel of death through this camp through this city of Egypt. And as I do, that angel of death will kill all the firstborns. There's only one way of escape. And that way of escape is to kill a lamb. A lamb without blemish, a lamb without spot, a lamb without wrinkle. Don't break any of its bones. But kill the lamb 
and take the blood and fathers, because always the fathers in the home, go to the front doorpost and spread the blood of the doorpost. Spread the blood on the doorpost. And as the angel of the death comes through, your firstborn will be saved. They celebrated this every year from there on in. You see, it happened just as God had promised. The angel of death did pass through, and the firstborns were all killed, apart from those homes that had the blood of a lamb around the doorpost and the threshold of the home. Every year it was celebrated. Every year it was remembered. And this is one of the greatest Old Testament shadows there is. Because God gave them this remembrance, not only to look back at the Passover, but to look forward to the Lamb of God who would come. See, John the Baptist then had the privilege in pointing at Jesus Christ and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who has come to take away the sin of the world. At Calvary, as Jesus Christ died, he indeed became the ultimate Passover Lamb. See, it's no coincidence that this was the Day of Atonement. (laughs) This was it. This was the day that the nation remembered It's no accident that that has taken place. God had already already ordained it, that that would indeed be the way it is. And so as the nation gathers in Jerusalem, they are ready to kill the lambs. But they always kill the lambs at twilight. That's six o'clock. Well, twilight today is three o'clock. God supernaturally brings twilight forward. You ever wondered why it got dark? I always used to think because it was God was really angry. That's not the case. He's pulling night in. He's bringing it three hours early. So here's the scene. The Jewish nation would sit in their homes and they would kill a lamb at twilight, remembering that this is how God saved people in the past and this is appointed to one who will come, the Messiah. They are waiting in their home. It's three hours' time until they have to kill the lamb. But now it's got dark. What what, what did they do? They must have been thinking, oh my gosh, do I get the lamb out? Do I kill it? What do I do? But the point was God in his grace was pointing them to the fact that the true Passover lamb has now come. God stands above his son with the dagger as the head of the home. He stands above his son with dagger in hand. Jesus Christ, ultimately being the sovereign one, needs to dismiss his spirit. So he says to his father, Father, it's time. It's the day of atonement. For me, Christ, The Passover lamb has come. So, Father, kill me. Take me. Finish the job that we started together and that now I need you to complete. It's incredible, isn't it? Isn't it fascinating? As Jesus Christ cried this cry, he did so not in doubt. He did so full of assurance full of rest, full of confidence that his work is done and that now really is the time for him to die. This is the time. So, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know, this cry in and of itself, I think, is compelling. And just to gaze at Christ and see just some of the depth and history and meaning behind this cry is so compelling and overwhelming. And yet this cry doesn't just stop at Calvary. This cry still echoes on today in the lives of all those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So let's look now at our assurance in his cry. What can we be assured of as believers through this incredible cry of Christ, the cry of assurance? Well, number one, there's two things I want to bring up. Number one, we can have assurance 
that his atoning work is finished for us. We can have absolute confident assurance that his atoning work, his saving work, is indeed finished for us. You see, I think one of the greatest challenges for Christians, some will say the greatest challenge for Christians is worldliness. I'm not convinced. I think one of the greatest challenges for Christians is the tendency and temptation to seek to become legalists. The temptation and tendency to smuggle it in works to what is a complete gift of salvation. Salvation is all of grace, but yet we face temptations all the time. To start with grace, but then try and add to it and think that we're playing a part. We don't do it deliberately, right? We don't wake up in the morning and think, oh, I know, I'm going to add to the cross today. We don't do that. We start the day by enjoying grace. We start the day amazed that Jesus has paid it all, and we sing it, how we're lost in wonder, and we're amazed. But at some subtle point in time, that enjoyment of experiencing grace becomes a way of earning grace. And that's when legalism occurs. We go from realizing that, man, I want to read my Bible, and I want to read my Bible because it's through this means of grace that I can grow in godliness, and I can be more amazed in, the, in Calvary. I can be more amazed in His amazing grace. We start praying as a means of grace of realizing, I can pray. This is amazing. I've been reconciled to the Father, so I can pray. I can actually talk to God, and he listens. We start to get a life group. We think, oh, this is great. All these friends, all these people that we can do life with. And we start to serve in the church just as a way of expressing our joy in the Lord and a way of enjoying and experiencing his grace. But at some point in time, that changes from a way of experiencing that grace to earning that grace. See, salvation is all of grace. But at some point in time, we can be tempted to think, you know what? My life just sucks. I'm a rubbish Christian. And I'm a rubbish Christian because I don't pray. I don't read my Bible. I struggle with church. And man, I'm trying to serve my socks off, but I just feel so empty. God must be so disappointed with me. When you say that, behold legalism in your heart. God is not disappointed with you. He's singing over you. How and why? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ alone in your place. It's not about you. Salvation is not about you. It's about God the Father. And so we start singing, oh, Jesus, it's all about you. Jesus has paid it all. But then we start to disbelieve that and add all the works to it and think Jesus paid most of it plus all the different things I do. That's not true. That's heresy. Let it go. That is completely false doctrine. Jesus has paid it all. And as we stand around this cry of assurance, that is what we can see. Our salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Jesus has paid it all. That's why we can say with the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It's not about my works. It's all about the work of Jesus Christ. It's not about what I can bring. It's all about what he offered as he hung on a cross and the Father stuck the dagger in. Jesus has paid it all. So let us guard against smuggling in our works. We do not need to. And when we try to smuggle in works, we are looking Jesus Christ in the eye and saying, you are not enough. Do we believe that? That's what we say. Let us recoil then to these words. Charles Wesley, in one of my favorite hymns, Over a Thousand Tongues, says, He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. He sets the prisoner free. 
His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avail for me. His blood avail for me. His blood, his blood avail for me. My friends, would that be the cry of our hearts too, that his blood avail for me? 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's done it all. As the Israelites sat ready for the Passover, imagine it in Exodus chapter 12. They stand waiting, nervous as a family. Will it be enough? What saves them? Is it that the fact that they're born in a Christian nation? No. Is it the fact they may have had a really good day? No. Is it the fact that they may have lived amazing morals throughout their lives? No. Is it their feelings? Is it just they feel so in love with God and they're so amazed that they know they're saved by that? No. It's the blood of the Lamb that is put round the doorpost for them. It's the same for us. The only way of salvation is to understand nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, His blood avails for us because it is attached to the doorposts of our life so that as God sees you, He sees you as family. He sees you as forgiven and righteous because the blood of Jesus Christ was enough for you. See, maybe you're here today and you're not a believer. You don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, listen, first of all, thanks for coming if that's the case. I probably wouldn't have done, but I'm pleased you did. You know, it's just great that you did. And it can be really strange, particularly coming into the church sometimes for the first time. You know, this, is, this is quite odd. And you start looking in the worship and you think, who are they waving to? What is this? There's so many things. You just think this is quite strange, so much of it. So we're just so respectful that you would come and that you'd want to be a part of us. And thank you, genuinely. Thank you so much for coming. But if I'm going to be any type of friend to you, I need to let you know your situation before the Lord could not be more serious. You see, the Bible teaches us that God made us. We didn't just evolve from some primordial sludge or something like that. God actually made us, and he made us to enjoy him, to be with him, to find our peace in him, to find our joy in him, to find our identity in him alone. But we've rejected him. Me too. The Bible says that all of us, All like sheep have gone astray. We've all said, listen, thanks very much. You're a lovely creator, but I'd rather worship creation. Thanks. I'll take what you've made for me instead of you. So we reject him. That's what the book of Romans talks to us about. In that place, we are an object of his wrath. Holiness, sin, results in wrath. We are an object of his wrath. We are destined to die once, as the book of Hebrews tells us, and after that we face judgment. In and of ourselves, we're an object of his wrath. He could have left us like that, but he didn't. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Folks, I want to encourage you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't bank on anything else apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're trying to perform. And maybe you're trying to do your best for charity or do your best in the, in the community and just think, oh, I'm a pretty nice guy. I'm sure it'll be good enough. It's not going to be good enough because the only good enough is perfect. And that's not us. Maybe you just think, well, I'm born in a Christian nation. Australia's a pretty good place. God must love Australia. I'm sure he does. But it's not going to be enough just to be born an Australian. Maybe you're relying on behavior or upon family or upon history. It's not going to be enough. 
The only way of salvation, according to the Bible, is through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And the only way we can respond to them is by putting our faith in Him as Lord and Savior. By responding, by believing in our hearts that Jesus really did come and that He died for you. And by believing in our hearts and through our mouths that He really is our King. It takes faith. And it takes repentance to apply this to ourselves. But I want to encourage you, if you haven't done that, do that. Know it today. Know it once and for sure that the blood has been put around your doorposts of your life. That salvation is yours. That forgiveness is yours. That redemption is yours. That heaven is your home. That's what he's done for you. So take it through faith and know that for yourself. Maybe though today you are a believer. Listen, take courage then and be assured his blood is availed for you. You don't need anything else. So it was one of the Puritans that once said, you know what? I take all my good works and all my bad and I cast them in a heap before the throne of grace. We have to do the same. You may suck at being a Christian. Well, that makes at least two of us. You may be a really good Christian. That's great. I don't really care. We're saved through the blood of the Lamb alone. That's all we got. It's all we need. We can have assurance that his atoning work is finished for us. And then finally, number two, we can have assurance that the Father will also receive us into his hands. See, in all reality, there are many things that we don't know about death. And the truth is, that can make us a little bit nervous, eh? Just think, well, I, my, you know, I don't... Dying, okay, we could probably work with that. It's the death bit that I'm not too keen on. it. And there could be lots of things that we think that's so unknown, it, it makes me nervous. And in reality, there are many things that we don't know about death. We don't know how. None of us in this room know how we're going to die. Jesus knew, but he was the Alpha and Omega. We're not. We don't know how we're going to die, and we also don't know when we're going to die, do we? See, Psalm 103 verse 15 says, As for man... This is just very encouraging. If you're, if you're thinking that you are quite impressive, just check this out. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. Well, that's quite sobering, is it not? You think, okay, well, that's great. So my life, you know, I'm just so needed. I'm like a piece of grass, oh, and I flourish and the wind blows, and nobody even remembers I existed. It's not great. But the psalmist is trying to give us context and understanding that, listen, you don't know when your time's up. You just don't know. You're like grass, and it flourishes for a while. But when the sovereign wind blows, you're done. We don't know how we're going to die. We don't know when. But we do know two things about that moment. We do know that that moment in death for you will be in God's timing. Do you hear that? If you are afraid of death, understand this. Your time of death will not come a moment too soon and a moment too late. Because from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands our destiny. Erwin Lutzer says, Jesus died not according to the whims of cowardly men, but according to the purposes of divine providence. Just so it will be with us. You and I will not die according to the will of cancer, nor the will of an irate drunk on the highway, nor the will of a painful disease. We will die under the good hand of God's providential care. We will pass through the curtain according to God's clock and not the timetable of random fate. 
I love that. Jesus Christ had to dismiss his own spirit. But having done that, he now sits at the right hand of the Father. What is he doing? Well, here's one of the things he's doing. From life's first cry to final breath, he's commanding your destiny. When you go, however that comes about, it will be in the perfect timing of God. Not a moment too soon and not a moment too late. It will be according to God's clock. And we'll also know this, and know this with assurance, We'll also know that in that moment of death, if we are believers, we will go into the hands of the Father. See, through faith in Jesus Christ, we became in Christ, right? We became through faith in Christ. We were united with Christ in His birth. We were united with Christ in His life. We were united with Christ in His death. And we were united with Christ in His work. Well, Jesus paid it all. And at the end, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. You're in Christ. And so when your eyes close in death, you can know with absolute assurance that your spirit will commit itself into the Father's hands. Isn't that wonderful? You see, as we consider the inevitability of death, in Britain we say that there's two things we can be sure of in life, death and taxes. It seems to be the case universally. And we're all going to die. But if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you, you can take assurance and confidence and rest in this cry. Because as believers, in death we have nothing to fear. Because in death, the Bible makes it clear that we're going home. Randy Alcorn once said that we've been made for a person and a place. That person is Jesus Christ and that place is heaven. It's true. We reject him, and so we reject what that is about. But when we put our faith in Jesus, we come back to that which we were made for, namely the person of Jesus Christ and heaven being our eternal home. D.L. Moody, the day before he died, says this. He says, earth recedes and heaven opens for me. If this is death, then it is sweet. Don't you love that? If this is death, then it is sweet. He knew he was going to die. He knew that tomorrow he would unlikely to be still be alive. He was so sick. And so he begins to communicate to those around him that, listen, this is death. It's sweet. And then he looks each one of them in the eye and says, you know what? Tomorrow, people will read in the papers that I have died. But don't believe it for a moment because I'll be more alive than ever before. That's the truth of every Christian. Death isn't the end. It's just the end of the prelude. And then we have eternity with God the Father in a place where there's no more pain, no more sin, no more suffering, no more diseases. A place instead that will be filled with joy and laughter. A place that will be filled with worship and work that we actually enjoy. A place that will be more like partying than we've ever known in our entire lives. It talks of banqueting and feasting and drinking in heaven around the throne of grace. There we'll be able to enjoy it from, with believers from every tribe and language and nation as we come together finally as the universal church, the universal bride of Christ. But more than anything, in that moment Jesus will be there. Folks, you're going to make it not because of you, but because his blood availed for you, and because his blood availed for you, you can know with certainty then that in that moment of death, the Father will receive you into his hands.
so there's nothing to fear. You know, this cry, I think, is compelling in and of itself, isn't it? As you look at what the Savior understood in his own life, what was taking place, it is compelling, and yet this cry captivates as we realize that it still echoes on in eternity today. And so, folks, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then find out how to. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose again, then you will be saved. Do that today. If you've got questions about that, then grab us afterwards. If you've still got questions after that, come to Christianity Explored in a pub. It'll be fun. And we'll talk it all through. It'll be great. But let's spend some time diversity. If what I'm saying is nonsense, then who cares? But if what I'm saying is true, then your eternity rests on your response to this truth. That's a big deal. So this is worthy of some conversation. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if this is already true for you, then I encourage you with all my heart, receive then the assurance and confidence rest that echoes through this cry. Jesus has paid it all for you. And in that, would we find great rest. Let's pray. And if the band can come up. Lord, as we gather around this cry of assurance, Lord, we are compelled and captivated afresh. You were sovereign even in your death. In all that was taking place from life's first cry to final breath, you were always in control, and now you're always in control for us. Lord, I pray for all of us, would this captivate our hearts? And would rest and confidence, assurance be our theme? Would we know that Jesus has indeed paid it all? That there's nothing left to pay, nothing else to do, because you have done it all. Just like the thief on the cross, who believed and in a moment knew that today you would be with him in paradise. Would that be our story too, Father? Our Father, we look forward to the day with peace and assurance. When you do call us home in your good time, when we do come into your hands, Lord, would you hold us fast to that day? And would that day not be fearful for us? But would it be a day of great rest and great joy in our eternity to come? For your glory, Lord. Amen.